In our final study, excuse me, our final chapter here of Peter, and we're going to do the first half of 1 Peter 5 tonight, and next week we'll come back and finish up 1 Peter 5, and then we get the joy and blessing of starting a new book. So, um, well, hey, I've been really blessed uh, by this week. VBS has been great. It was great to come here tonight and have just a uh, little bit of time of worship, and what a blessing that was. Worship was such a blessing. I was wondering if the worship team wouldn't mind going back up again and just doing that last song you did one more time. Would you guys be do that? Yeah. You're going to hum it or what? Yeah. All righty. What's that? Acapella. Yeah, acapella, yeah. All righty, 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to do verses 1 through 7. I have a love-hate relationship with this um, message tonight. I love it. I love how it came together in the sense of it's just straightforward points. The reason I have a trouble with this is because it's talking about leadership in church. And anytime I do a study like this, it, it's obviously very, very convicting, just like any time you teach on being a husband or being a father. But here it is. It's about how the church leadership is supposed to act, and then it kind of goes into, well, leadership is setting the example that also applies to us. Now, if you remember correctly, last week when we went through the last part of First Peter 4, we talked about how we're supposed to act as a body. And if you remember correctly, I said last week, if you think we're picking on you, don't worry about it, because the next week we're going to pick on me, and that's what it is here tonight. Now, here's the thing, though. Generally speaking, a lot of times people look at passages that are supposed to be for the pastors and leaders and they sit there and say, okay, well, good, this doesn't apply to us. Almost any time you see a command given to leadership in the church, you can find another verse in the Bible where that same command is given to the body in the church. There's only a few places in the Bible where God says, this is what I want the leadership in the church to do, and it's not asked the same of the body. So as you look through this tonight, you can sit there and say, well, it's a good thing I'm not called to do that. We can find verses that say you're called to do the same thing. These are good examples for us all to act. So let's look at this. Let's look at first what we're supposed to do, and then we're going to go to what we're not supposed to do. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1 says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I whom a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. What do we see here? How is leadership supposed to be? The first thing you see in verse 1 is this word, this word there, elder. Now, depending on your translation, your translation may have it a little bit different there. But the idea is this is talking about leadership. Certain people are called to the idea of leading the church. This does not make them any better. This does not make them any spiritually stronger or anything like that. It means that that's the calling and the responsibility that God has put on them. So there is the first thing you see here is how is a leader supposed to serve? They have a spiritual responsibility in what they do. This is something that should not be taken lightly. You can look at the passage there of James 3.1. Let not many of you become teachers. It seems like any time someone gets saved, and any guy gets saved, after about two, three weeks of walking with the Lord, the first thing they want to do is they want to become a pastor. Great. It's great to have that heart to want to serve. But God makes it abundantly clear, if you choose to serve in a leadership position in church, more is expected out of you. You are a witness, you are a testimony in what you do. Now, this is where some people say, well, that's why I don't serve, I don't want that burden. Listen, you're still called to be an example. You still have a spiritual responsibility. You still have an influence on people that you work with, your kids, your wife, your family, whatever it is. But 
If you'd go to that next step of serving in the church and any type of leadership, God says, I take this very, very seriously. So the first thing you see here, how is a leader supposed to serve? They have to understand the spiritual responsibility that's given to them. That term, their elder, is a term of respect, meaning this is someone that you hopefully look up to. This is hopefully someone being an example to you of how to live the Christian life. So spiritual responsibility is the first one. The next one is you should have a love for the body. Verse 2, you're shepherding the flock. I have met many pastors, they almost talk with the hatred of the church they serve at. They can't stand them. And I've talked to pastors that when you talk to them, maybe they're part of a denomination where they have a cycle, where they go serve at a certain church for a while, then go serve at a certain church for another time. And I've heard pastors say, I cannot wait till they move me. I just cannot wait for them to move me. There is not that love for the body. You don't need to turn there, but I'm just going to read this passage out of Ezekiel 34. Listen to God's heart as a shepherd. And this is the heart we're supposed to have. He says, Thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search out for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and the valleys and on the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and their fold on the high mountains of Israel." There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture in the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock. I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. That's a heart of somebody who says, I care. And once again, what's the next step here? A pastor should hopefully have a love for the body. That love for the body takes us to the next one there in verse 2. That there's a concern for the body. That word there is overseers. And once again, depending on your translations, uh, King James here says oversight. This means that we oversee what is going on in the church. This doesn't mean we butt into things. What it means is that we care enough to step in and say, hey, you're going through a tough time. Hey, do you want to get together and talk about that? Or I see you're kind of struggling here today with something. Is there any way we can pray for you? You drop cards. You make phone calls. You oversee the body. You have a concern for the body. One of the verses that Rich and I use a lot out here is Proverbs 27, 23. You see it right there. Know the state of your flocks and put your heart into caring for your herds. You know, it's important to care. And once again, I'm not trying to build us up and tear down other pastors. I know our failures and shortcomings. But I've met other pastors where the idea of caring, no. I'm there on Sunday mornings from whatever to whatever, and that's where I'm there for. You know, and I just stop and I think, wow, I just can't even imagine that. There's that idea. There's supposed to be a concern for the body. And lastly, the part we've talked about before here, be an example. That's exactly what Peter's trying to say right here. Look at the end of verse 3. Being an example to the flock. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now that's a huge statement. And that's a huge statement of responsibility where we say, okay, look at the life I'm living and then live the life I'm living. Not because I'm excellent, not because I got it all figured out, but because the life I'm living imitates Christ. And so by imitating me, you're actually imitating Jesus. That's a pretty big statement. And one of the things that I know out here, I've been... Uh, Serving as the head pastor out here for 12 years. I tell you, your life's under a microscope. It really is. Everybody expects your kids to be the best kids. Everybody expects your marriage to be the best marriage. And I've said it for a long time. My kids have sin nature just like your kids have sin nature. My marriage has good times. My marriage has rough times. But the thing is, it's the Lord that gets us through it. And you want to be that godly example of imitating me as I imitate Christ. Now, a lot of people look at that last phrase, and that last phrase intimidates them. That last phrase is given to all of us. 
You're all asked to be a picture of Christ. And so therefore, your co-workers, your friends, your family all say, I want to be like that person because that person is imitating Christ and how they live the life. I tell you right now, it is so rare anymore amongst the church. And I don't mean harvest. I mean the church in the world out of millions, if not billions of people that call themselves Christians. It is so rare to find somebody who is actually living the life. I mean, really, honestly doing it. And I am just so blessed and so amazed when I look out here at Harvest, especially the people that come on Wednesday night. You guys are really living the life. The Sunday people, they don't. But the Wednesday people, they do. And that is, I I have a pastor friend that refers to the Wednesday people as the magi, the wise men, because they're the ones that really, really want it. Now, take it as you want, but that's a compliment. So the idea of living the life. I tell you, that's really what it comes down to. So you can see four examples here. As as a pastor, there should be a spiritual responsibility of what we're doing, a love for the body, concern for the body, and being a godly example to the body. Now, real quick, what shouldn't the pastor be doing? Verse 2, being forced to care. Look right here. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion. It shouldn't be, my goodness, somebody wants to talk tonight. Fine. Let's talk. No. You, you shouldn't be forced to care for the body. It should be natural in the sense of God has called you. That's where he's put you. And that's what you want to do is you want to care. The next one, you shouldn't be in it for the money. Verse 3. That idea of you shouldn't be there. Excuse me. It's not verse 3. But verse 2. Not doing it for dishonest gain. I tell you right now, if someone says, I'm just going to be in the pastor to just get, get the money and just work on Sundays and maybe a few Wednesdays. That's not the heart you want. You want someone who's doing it because they're called and feel led to do it. Verse 3, not doing it for the power. You don't want to do it because you can have lord over people. I've met people that are pastors, and my personal opinion, I'm not being judgmental, but just looking at the way the church is run, I think part of the reason why they like being a pastor is they like being the one in charge. They like having a staff. They like being able to tell people what to do. They like the authority that comes with it. Peter says that's not what you want. You want somebody who has a spiritual responsibility for what they're doing, a love for the body, a concern for the body, and being a godly example in all that they do. You don't want somebody who's doing it because they have to. You don't want somebody doing it for the money. And you don't want somebody doing it for the power. So those verses right there, verses 1 through 3, are really what you're looking for in the spiritual leadership of a church. Now, any quick questions, comments about that before we move on here to the rest of the stuff? I do. There's a great Methodist church down the road. And uh, you may still be able to catch their service, I think. So, Anybody have a real question or comment other than Ron's silly one there? Yeah, oh, John. No one listens to the tapes. It's just this big, it's this big thing we do. We put them online. No one listens. We make CDs. There's nothing on it. No one ever wants to take anything home and listen to that. So... No, the, no, actually, I take that back. I, um, yes, people do listen to them. I got a gal that listens to the uh, Wednesday ones, and I can't think of a better word, so don't take it the way it sounds, religiously. And anytime I make a comment on the Wednesday people being better than Sunday, I guarantee I will get an email from her on Thursday saying, just so you know, I can't make it on Wednesdays. So I just want to let you know, I will probably get an email from that person, and they will probably let me know that. So, Lisa. That's a really good question. How do you counter leading the church as a business rather than the body of Christ? I'm going to tell you right now, it used to be a lot easier to balance. Because, and I'm 
when we first took over out here, um, you know, Jim Crager did a, a wonderful job. And, you know, I got saved through Jim Crager's teaching. I served as an assistant under him for three years. And when he stepped down in, in 2000, we took over. And, and what has happened the last 12 years since we've taken over is the church has grown a lot numerically. Just the Lord has blessed that to him be the glory. And all of a sudden, 12 years ago, it was just me. And, and now we have you know, four people on staff that are paid positions, and that does not include the literally probably hundreds of volunteers that do countless hours. And when, before, we used to have these meetings of, oh, okay, let's do this, let's do that. And now, well, giving has gone up, the money has gone up, and there's times where you're sitting there, and you almost feel like, okay, I want to just focus on the spiritual needs, but yet there's also this business side. And, and, and when I say there's a business side, please don't take it the way I'm saying, but there is a responsibility in the leadership to say, hey, every Sunday and every Wednesday, people are dropping money in that little box back there with the assumption that that money is going to be prayed over and used to further the kingdom of God. And we take that responsibility very, very seriously. So is there a business side of it? To an extent, there is, because we just don't want to sit there and say, hey, look, we're sitting on this much money. What do you guys want to do? No, what's the Lord want us to do? And we also do things too, and I'll tell you right now, we've been blessed with the great staff out here, and um, I, I tell you, some of the people that serve out here, they're always finding ways to cut corners, do things a little cheaper than what it was, because you want to save money. The more money that is saved here is the more money that can go to missions. I tell you right now, Rich does a great job of saying, you know what, I can just try to fix that myself. What a blessing that is that that money can be saved and then be focused on mission. So to answer your question, there is this balance of ministry versus business. Obviously, you're in a building right now that costs money to heat. There's doors that break. There's things that need to be fixed. Uh, there's things that happen. And I'm thankful that we have people that do everything they can to try to do it as inexpensively as they can to therefore save money for missions. So we're just finding a balance of that. And also, number two, I'll just say this, and I'm not trying to elevate us and put down any churches. The emphasis of the church is not the church. I have met churches that almost seem to be in the business of proclaiming and building up themselves. The Harvest Fellowship is something that God has is here in Hamler, Ohio. And there's a history of Harvest Fellowship that goes back even farther than this. But what God has done here in Hamler is for the season that he's called this. I don't know what that season includes. 10, 20, 30 years down the road, maybe the Lord is not going to call this church to be here. Maybe 10 years down the road, I'm not going to be called to be here. I don't know. So the emphasis of the church is not the church in promoting Harvest Fellowship. And the emphasis of the church is not promoting the pastor. The emphasis of the church is seeing souls get saved. And so when I see a church where almost their main emphasis seems to be promoting their pastor and the church, I think, come on, that, that kind of concerns me a little bit. What matters most are, are people coming into this building, and if you're not saved, are you going to get saved by hearing the truth about Christ? And if you are saved, are you going to go deeper in your walk with Christ? Those are the only two things that matter. Those are the only two things. And it doesn't matter who's up behind this pulpit. That person, I hope, has the same ministry and mindset of seeing souls get saved. So I'm rambling now, and I don't even know what the question was. So, Ron, back to you. I didn't know that. I did not know that. I just randomly picked a denomination. I have nothing against the Methodist. And, uh, but, but the point of it is, is, I really haven't learned anything about the Bible or Christ until I come to Harvest. And it's, it's truly a teaching church. I am so blessed by you. I know you care. And this is, this is the most perfect church I've ever seen. <laughs> this, this is not the most... Thank you to the five, five people that clapped. Um, 
First off, number one, the emphasis on the word. I, I will say this. The reason there's an emphasis on the word is because the pastor that I was saved under, Jim Crager, had emphasis on the word. The reason Jim Crager has an emphasis on the word because he was involved with Calvary Chapel, which has an emphasis on the word. The reason Calvary Chapel has an emphasis on the word is because when you look through the book of Acts in the New Testament, the Bible has an emphasis on the word. So to me... The way it's supposed to be done is there's supposed to be an emphasis on the Word. We're going to finish up First Peter next week, and we're just going to pick another book of the Bible and go through it. Now, does this mean we're against topicals? No. This coming Sunday, it's VBS Sunday, we'll probably do a topical message that includes the theme of what VBS was, just to kind of include the church in it. But I'm willing to bet 48 out of 52 Sundays out of the year, it's going to be verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible. My personal opinion, I love that. I absolutely love that. And I say this half-joking, half-serious. That's a whole lot easier on me. I know if we get through verse 7 tonight, which I'm hoping to get through, next week I start in verse 8. I already know what I'm doing because the Lord already leads. And I personally believe when, when I first started coming out here, and if it's the first time I ever heard verse by verse, chapter by chapter, teaching through the Bible, it just totally blew me away. Totally blew me away. I love it. And once we get on 1 Peter, we'll pick another book and start going through it. There, there's something that God blesses about just sticking to the Word. There's a little saying that Calvary Chapel uses that says, simply teach the Word of God simply. Just keep presenting God's Word. He takes care of the rest by it. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. All right, let's move on then. So we've talked about what to do. We've talked about not what to do. But there's this little thing here in verse 4 where it says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. We're running out of time here tonight. Give credit where credit's due. I was reading this one commentary about this, and they just made a simple little point of, look at all the times Jesus is mentioned as a shepherd in the Bible. You've got to love it. 1 Peter 5, 4, he's the chief shepherd. John 10, 10, he's the good shepherd. Hebrews 13, 12, 20, he's the great shepherd. You've got to love that. Put yourself in the mindset of just the little lamb that you are. You have this shepherd in Christ who just cares for you and watches out for you, meets your needs, ministers to you. It goes back to that passage we read in Ezekiel 34. Him, I should say, he, he just is there as that shepherd that cares. What a wonderful little study that is, and I encourage you, look at John 10.10, 10, look at Hebrews 13.20 if you want to do a little study on the idea of Christ being our shepherd. It's a great little thing. But what happens now in verses 1 through 4, Peter sets the scene of saying, okay, here's the way the church is supposed to run. Now what happens is we need to submit ourselves to how that works. Verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. The way the church is supposed to work is people stand up here on a Sunday and Wednesday this, and, and, and teach God's word simply. And so therefore you read and hear and study that and then you go live it out. And then if during the week or, or whatever you're having a difficult time in life and you feel like, hey, I need some extra counsel, you, you come to people and say, hey, there's something I want to talk to you about and that hopefully that person sits down with you and then gives you God's word one more time on an individual basis. That's how it is. You know, we do a lot of counseling out here at church and one time someone asked me, he said, well, you do a lot of counseling. Isn't that difficult? And I said, no, actually, counseling is pretty easy. You give them Jesus and you give them scripture. I mean, that, that's what counseling is. Now, granted, it's difficult because your heart breaks for the situation they're in. But anytime someone comes to me with a problem, my first thought is, well, what's the Bible say about that problem? Only thing we need to do is find the appropriate verse. And once you find the appropriate passage, you give it to them. That's how simple counseling is. The hard part about counseling is sometimes we don't want to take the verse that we're given and live it out. 
I know how I'm supposed to live my life. I know what type of father I'm supposed to be. I know what type of husband I'm supposed to be. Sometimes I just don't want to do it. That's the difficultness, is actually doing what it is. It's the classic, the the answer is simple, but the follow-through is hard. So part of the way this works is that younger group of people, maybe in age, maybe spiritually in age, I've met people younger than me that know a whole lot more about certain situations in life than I ever could. I respect that. I've also met people a lot older than me that spiritually are a lot younger than me, if you follow what I'm trying to say here. So there's always ways you can learn from people. So we submit ourselves to that wisdom, that guidance, and as you submit yourself to that, it saves you from so much heartache and problem. It's amazing how many times we get ourselves into situations in life that are not in line with God's will. Why? Because we just didn't simply listen to what the elders, and when I say the elders, I don't necessarily mean the church, but those people that are spiritually watching out for us where they said, hey, be careful. Jump back in your life. How many times have you got yourself into a situation you should have or if you just would have said, you know what? If I just would have listened to that person because that person was speaking the truth of God's word, it would have been a lot easier. Can you turn with me to Titus real quick? We're running short on time, but this Titus passage is important. Because this Titus passage is a key passage that we use out here a lot at church. Titus chapter 2, please. When we're talking to different people that serve out here and lead different ministries, there's a term that we throw around as a Titus 2 church. A Titus 2 church is what we're talking about here, and you see this in Titus chapter 2. This is the way the church is supposed to work. Titus chapter 2, let's go ahead and start here in verse 1. But as for you, this is Paul speaking to Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Okay, so as the pastor, what I'm supposed to do is give you sound doctrine. Okay, that's easy. What's sound doctrine? Verse 2, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, and love and patience. Okay, older men, verse 2, that's your calling. Verse 3, the older women, likewise, they be reverent behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That's your calling. Okay, young women, verse 4, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may be blasphemed. Verse 6, likewise exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and corruptibility, sound speech that it cannot be condemned, that the one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. I'll use this all the time. Titus 2. Okay, guys, you've been walking in the Lord for a while. You're solid in your faith. Go find somebody younger in their faith and encourage them, uplift them, be a witness to them. Older women, you've been around the block a few times. You know the ups and downs of kids and marriage and life and the difficulties. Find that younger woman. Take her under your wing. Pray for her. Encourage her. That's the way the church is supposed to work. Younger men, learn from the older men. Younger women, learn from the older women. If I ever a gal come up to me and she wants to talk about something and it's getting really emotionally and spiritually in depth, I usually say, well, you know what? Titus 2 says the women should really minister to the women. And I'll say, hey, have you ever met so-and-so out here at church? I think she could really bless you and help you. Because listen, you don't want my advice on how to be a wife and a mom. You want a mom's advice on how to be a mom and a wife's advice on how to be a wife. I can give you the scriptures, but you want somebody that's walked it. Titus 2 will hook you up with the wife and mom that's been going through the same problems. And she'll encourage you. That's the way the church is supposed to work. But the key word here, putting this together with 1 Peter and also here in Titus, is the idea of submission. 
Because what happens is, and I'm not trying to sound like an old fogey, what happens is a lot of time the younger generation doesn't want to listen. There's nothing you can do about that. Nothing. I don't know how many times out here at church we've seen somebody getting themselves into some problems, and we said, you know what? It'd be really good for them to go sit down with so-and-so. Okay. So we go try to set it up. We come back. They won't do it. They don't want to sit down with them. What are you supposed to do about that? Or they do sit down with them, and I'll go back and I'll check. Maybe we'll have Betsy sit down with a young gal, or Rich will sit down with a young guy, and I'll go back to them and say, hey, how'd it go? And they'll say, well, they were there, but they didn't listen. What do you mean they didn't listen? Well, we went through stuff. We tried to encourage them. We tried to pray with them. But you could tell they just weren't listening. What's happening is there's not a submission to the wisdom that is there. And I tell you, one of the best things you can do is realize you don't know everything. And I don't care what state you're at spiritually or physically in age. You can always learn something from somebody. And what Peter is trying to tell us here, what Titus is trying to tell us, is the way the church works is sometimes we submit ourselves to people. And there's times where I call people up and say, hey, what do you think about this? I may not use that word submission, but I'm submitting myself under their wisdom saying, you've been down this road before. What do you think? Because there's wisdom in that. That's the way it's supposed to work. What happens when you don't have that wisdom? Well, you can look here. The opposite of submission. I just picked three quick verses here out of Proverbs 13. They all use the word scoffer. Now, your King James was out there. It says scorner. You other translations say the word mocker. It's the same idea. Just look at these verses real quick. First one, Proverbs 13, 1. A wise son heeds his father's instructions, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. We've all seen that. Maybe you've lived it. Where you know what? Mom and dad said this, and you said they're dumb. They don't know anything. They actually are a lot smarter than what you think. Next one, Proverbs 15, 12. A scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. I see sometimes out here at church, I see somebody going down a path of life that's not good. It's going to lead them to problems. And I always think, why don't they come ask for, for, for help and encouragement? Because a scoffer will not go to the wise. And I'm not saying I'm wise, but people won't humble themselves to go say, hey, I've got myself into trouble, or hey, I'm making bad choices here, I need encouragement. And a scoffer does not love one who corrects them. It amazes me, and I've seen this so often in my life on both sides, But as a pastor, we'll go to someone and say, listen, we're not here to judge you, we're not here to condemn you, we're not here to rebuke you, but we're concerned about you. Some of the choices you're making, and they will get furious. Why? Because a scoffer does not love one who corrects him. They want to do what they want to do when they want to do it. Look at the last one, Proverbs 21, 24. A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. They know it all. I remember one time doing counseling with a couple... And I remember every time, every time I started making a point, the guy would say, I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. Every single time. So finally, about the fourth, fifth time, I said, you know what? Obviously, since you know what you're doing, why are you in here in counseling? Because you obviously know everything. There's that idea of this, that that arrogant pride. I, I know it. Well, if you know it, quite honestly, why is your life completely falling apart? You may know it, but you're not living it. And we've got to make sure that we're willing to submit ourselves to the wisdom and guidance of the spiritual people that God has put in our lives to say, hey, I can learn from this. Last point we're going to say here, 1 Peter chapter 5. What happens then is when you submit yourself, verse 6, you humble yourselves under God, and what happens then? He lifts you up. You humble yourselves to the people that God has placed in your life to encourage you, uplift you, and help you. You submit to that, and God then says, I will lift you up as you do what? Verse 7, cast all your care upon him. 
You submit that to the Lord. You submit that to the people that God has placed in your life, and God lifts you up and gets you through it. I don't know how many times I've quoted 1 Peter 5, 7 to people, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. But you know the way that verse only works? That verse only works when you decide to cast all your care upon him. I can sit there and pray with you, I can talk to you, and you can tell me everything you're nervous and worried and anxious and fearful of, but unless you stop and submit yourself to God and say, I give you all this fear, worry, and anxiety and concern, the verse doesn't work. I think people are looking for some magic peace pill type thing. I just pray this prayer, I read this verse, and all of a sudden my life is peaceful. Your life is peaceful when you cast all your care upon him, submit yourself to him, and then therefore he then gives you peace on what you're going through. So we're running out of time here. We'll finish up 1 Peter 5 next week, picking it up there in verse 8, and we don't got much left, and we'll finish it up. And does anybody have any final questions, comments here, or anything we went over about uh, spiritual authority, uh, leadership, submission, and uh, submitting ourselves to, to God's will and to the people he's put in our lives? Alrighty, if not, let's pray and we'll let you guys go.